Welcome to Frig Friday, featuring Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter, read by Michelle Hammond, sponsored by Gal's Guide. Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset Winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature Book One The Wreath Part Two The Wreath The foreign merchants who spent the summer trading in Oslo arrived in the city in spring, around Holy Cross Day, which was ten days before the vigil of St. Halvard. For that celebration, people came in throngs from all the villages, from Lake Mjosa to the Swedish border, so the town was teeming with people during the first weeks of May. It was best to buy goods from the foreigners during that time, before they had sold too many of their wares. Sister Potentia was in charge of the shopping at Nanasetter, and on the day before the vigil of St. Halvard, she had promised Ingebjorg and Kristen that they could go along with her into town. But around noon, some of Sister Potentia's kinsmen came to the convent to visit her. She would not be able to go out that day. Then Ingebjorg managed to beg permission for them to go alone, although this was against the rules. As an escort, an old farmer who received a corody from the cloister was sent along with them. His name was Hawken. By this time, Kristen had been at Nonacetter for three weeks, and in all that time she had not once set foot outside the convent's courtyards and gardens. She was astonished to see how spring-like it had become outside. The small groves of leafy trees out in the fields were shiny green, and the wood anemones were growing as thick as a carpet beneath the lustrous tree trunks. Bright fair-weather clouds came sailing above the islands in the fjord, and the water looked fresh and blue, rippled by small gusts of spring wind. Ingebjörg skipped along, snapping off clusters of leaves from the trees and smelling them, turning to stare at the people they passed, but Hawken reproached her. Was that the proper way for a noble maiden to act, and one who was wearing convent attire at that? The maidens had to take each other by the hand and walk along behind him, quietly and decorously, but Ingebjörg let her eyes wander and her mouth chatter all the same, since Hawken was slightly deaf. Kristen now wore the garb of a young sister, an undyed pale gray homespun dress, a woolen belt and headband, and a simple dark blue cloak with the hood pulled forward so that her braided hair was completely hidden. Hawken strode along in front of them with a big brass-knobbed stick in his hand. He was dressed in a long black coat with an ogness day made of lead hanging on his chest and a picture of St. Christopher on his hat. His white hair and beard were so well brushed that they glinted like silver in the sun. The upper part of the town, from the Nun's Creek and down toward the Bishop's Citadel, was a quiet neighborhood. There were no market stalls or hostelries, only farms belonging mostly to gentry from the outlying villages. The buildings faced the street with dark and windowless timbered gables. But on this day, the lane was already crowded up there, and servants were hanging over the farm fences, talking to the people walking past. As they came out near the bishop's citadel, they joined a great throng at the marketplace in front of Halvard's Cathedral and Olaf's Cloister. Booths had been set up on the grassy slope, and there were strolling players who were making trained dogs jump through barrel hoops. 
but Hawken wouldn't let the maiden stop to watch, nor would he allow Kristen to enter the church. He said it would be more fun for her to see it on the great festival day itself. On the road in front of Clement's church, Hawken took them both by the hand, for here the crowd was even bigger, with people coming in from the wharves or from the lanes between the town yards. The girls were going to Mickelgard, where the shoemakers worked. Ingebjörg thought the dresses that Kristen had brought from home were pretty and nice, but she said that the footwear Kristen had brought with her from the village could not be worn on fine occasions, and when Kristen saw the foreign-made shoes, of which Ingebjörg had many pairs, she thought she could not rest until she had bought some for herself. Mickelgard was one of the largest town yards in Oslo. It extended all the way from the wharves up toward Shoemaker Lane, with more than 40 buildings surrounding two big courtyards. Now booths with homespun canopies had also been set up in the courtyards, and above the tents towered a statue of St. Crispin. There was a great crush of people shopping. Women were running back and forth to the cookhouses with pots and buckets. Children were getting tangled up in people's feet, Horses were being led in and out of the stables, and servants were carrying loads in and out of the storage sheds. Up on the galleries of the lofts, where the finest wares were sold, the shoemakers and hawkers in the booths called to the maidens below, dangling toward them small, colorful, gold-stitched shoes. But Ingebjörg headed for the loft where shoemaker Diedrich had his workshop. But Ingebjörg headed for the loft where shoemaker Diedrich had his workshop. He was German but had a Norwegian wife and owned a building in Mickelgard. The old man was conducting business with a gentleman wearing a traveling cape and a sword at his belt, but Ingebjörg stepped forward boldly, bowed, and said, "'Good, sir. Won't you allow us to speak with Diedrich first? We must be back home in our convent before Vespers, and you perhaps have more time.' The gentleman greeted her and stepped aside." Diedrich gave Ingebjörg a poke with his elbow and asked her with a laugh whether they were dancing so much at the cloister that she had already worn out all the shoes she had bought the year before. Ingebjörg gave him a poke back and said that they were hardly used at all, good heavens, but here was another maiden, and she pulled Kristen over to him. Then Diedrich and his apprentice brought a chest out to the gallery, and he started taking out the shoes, each pair more beautiful than the last. Kristen sat down on a box and tried the shoes on her feet. There were white shoes and brown and red and green and blue shoes, shoes with painted heels made of wood and shoes with no heels at all, shoes with buckles, shoes with silken ties, and shoes made from two or three different colored leathers. Kristen thought she liked them all. But they were so expensive that she was shocked. Not a single pair cost less than a cow back home. Her father had given her a purse with one mark of silver, counted out in coins when he left. This was to be her spending money, and Kristen had thought it a great sum. But she could see that Ingebjörg didn't think she could buy much with it at all. Ingebjörg also had to try on shoes, just for fun. It didn't cost anything, said Diedrich with a laugh. She bought a pair of leaf-green shoes with red heels, but she had to take them on credit, Diedrich knew her, after all, as well as her family. But Kristen could see that Diedrich did not much care for this, and he was also dismayed because the tall gentleman in the traveling cape had left the loft. They had spent a long time trying on shoes. 
So Kristen chose a pair of shoes without heels made of thin blue-violet leather. They were stitched with silver and rose-colored stones, but she didn't like the green silk straps. Then Diedrich said that he could change them, and he took them along to a room at the back of the loft. There he had boxes of silk ribbons and small silver buckles, things which shoemakers were actually not allowed to sell, and many of the ribbons were too wide and the buckles too big for shoes anyway. Both Kristen and Ingeborg had to buy a few of these odds and ends, and by the time they had drunk a little sweet wine with Diedrich, and he had wrapped up their purchases in a homespun cloth, it had grown quite late, and Kristen's purse had grown much lighter. When they came out onto East Lane again, the sun was quite gold, and the dust from all the traffic in the town hung like a faint haze over the street. It was so warm and lovely, and people were arriving from Eicheberg with great armfuls of new foliage to decorate their houses for the holiday. Then Ingeborg decided that they should walk out toward Gaita Bridge. On market days there was always so much entertainment going on in the paddocks along the river, with jugglers and fiddlers. Ingeborg even heard that a whole ship full of foreign animals had arrived, and they were being displayed in cages down on the shore. Hawken had had some German beer at Mickelgard and was now quite amenable and in good spirits, so when the maidens took him by the arm and begged so nicely, he relented, and the three of them walked over to Eicheberg. On the other side of the river there were only a few small farms scattered along the green slopes along the river and in the steep incline. They went past the Minorites' cloister, and Kristen's heart shrank with shame, for she suddenly remembered that she had wanted to offer most of her silver for Arna's soul. But she had not wanted to speak of this to the priest at Nonaceter. She was afraid of being questioned. She had thought that perhaps she could go out to visit the barefoot friars in the pastures to see whether Brother Edvin had returned. She would have liked so much to meet him, but she didn't know how properly to approach one of the monks or to broach the topic. And now she had so little money left that she didn't know whether she could afford a mass. Maybe she would have to settle for offering a thick wax candle. Suddenly they heard a terrible roar from countless voices out at the paddock on the shore. It was as if a storm were passing over the swarm of people gathered there. And then the whole crowd came rushing up toward them, shrieking and hollering. Everyone was running in wild terror, and several people screamed to Hawken and the maidens that the leopards were loose. They raced back toward the bridge, and they heard people shouting to each other that a cage had tipped over, and two leopards had escaped. Someone, someone also mentioned a snake. The closer they came to the bridge, the greater the crowd. A baby fell from a woman's arms right in front of them, and Hawkins stood over the little one to protect him. A moment later, Kristen and Ingeborg caught a glimpse of the old man far off to one side, holding the child in his arms, and then they lost sight of him. At the narrow bridge, the mob surged forward so fiercely that the maidens were forced out into a field. They saw people running along the riverbank. Young men jumped into the water and began to swim, but the older people leaped into the moored boats, which became instantly overloaded. Kristen tried to make Ingeborg listen to her. She screamed that they should run over to the Minorites' cloister. The grey-cowled monks had come rushing over and were trying to gather the terrified people. Kristen was not as frightened as her friend, and they saw nothing of the wild animals, but Ingeborg had completely lost her head. The swarms of people surged forward again, and then were driven back from the bridge because a large crowd of men who had gone to the nearest farms to arm themselves was now headed back, some on horseback, some running. 
When Ingeborg was almost trampled by a horse, she gave a shriek and took off up the hill toward the forest. Kristen had never imagined that Ingeborg could run so fast. She was reminded of a hunted boar, and she ran after her so that they wouldn't become separated. They were deep inside the forest before Kristen managed to stop Ingeborg on a small pathway, which seemed to lead down toward the road to Traleborg. They paused for a moment to catch their breath. Ingeborg was sniffling and crying, and she said she didn't dare go back alone through the town and all the way out to the convent. Kristen didn't think it was a good idea either, with so much commotion in the streets. She thought they should find a house where they might hire a boy to accompany them home. Ingeborg recalled a bridle path to Traleborg farther down near the shore, and she was certain that along the path were several houses, so they followed the path downhill. Distressed as they both were, it seemed to them that they walked for a long time before they finally saw a farm in the middle of a field. In the courtyard, they found a group of men sitting at a table beneath some ash trees, drinking. A woman went back and forth, bringing pitchers out to them. She gave the two maidens in convent attire a surprised and annoyed look, and none of the men seemed to want to accompany them when Kristen explained their need. But finally, two young fellows stood up and said they would escort the girls to Nonacetter if Kristen would pay them an urtug. She could tell from their speech that they weren't Norwegian, but they seemed to be decent men. She thought their demand shamefully exorbitant, but Ingeborg was scared out of her wits, and she didn't think they should walk home alone so late in the day, so she agreed. No sooner had they come out onto the forest path than the men drew aside and began talking to each other. Kristen was upset by this, but she didn't want to show her apprehension, so she spoke to them calmly, told them about the leopards, and asked them where they were from. She also looked around, pretending that at any minute she expected to meet the servants who had been escorting them. She talked about them as if they were a large group. Gradually, the men said less and less, and she understood very little of their language anyway. After a while, Kristen noticed that they were not headed the way she had come with Ingeborg. The path led in a different direction, more to the north, and she thought they had already gone much too far. Deep inside her, terror was smoldering, but she dared not let it slip into her thoughts. She felt oddly strengthened, having Ingeborg along. The girl was so foolish that Kristen realized she would have to handle things for both of them. Under her cloak, she pulled out the reliquary cross that her father had given her, clasped her hand around it, and prayed with all her heart that they might meet up with someone soon, as she tried to gather her courage and pretend that nothing was wrong. A moment later, she saw that the path led out onto a road, and at that spot there was a clearing. The bay and the town lay far below them. The men had led them astray, either willfully or because they were not familiar with the paths. They were high up on the slope and far north of Gyta Bridge, which Kristen could see. The road they had reached seemed to lead in that direction. Then she stopped, took out her purse, and began to count out the ten penninger into her hand. Now, good sirs, she said, we no longer need your escort. We know the way from here. We give you thanks for your trouble, and here is your payment, as we agreed. God be with you, good friends. The men looked at each other for a moment, quite foolishly, so that Kristen was almost about to smile. But then one of them said with an ugly leer that the road down to the bridge was a desolate one. It would not be advisable for them to go alone. No one would be so malicious or so stupid as to want to stop two maidens, especially two dressed in convent attire, 
replied Kristen. We prefer to go alone. And then she handed them the money. The man grabbed hold of her wrist, stuck his face close to hers, and said something about a kus and a bütel. Kristen understood that they would be allowed to go unharmed if she would give him a kiss and her purse. She remembered Bentine's face close to hers, just like this, and for a moment fear seized her. She felt nauseated and sick. But she pressed her lips together, calling upon God and the Virgin Mary in her heart, and at that moment she heard hoofbeats on the path coming from the north. Then she struck the man in the face with her coin purse so that he stumbled, and she shoved him in the chest so that he toppled off the path and tumbled down into the woods. The other German grabbed her from behind, tore the purse out of her hand, and tugged at the chain around her neck, breaking it. She was just about to fall, but she seized hold of the man, attempting to get her cross back. He tried to pull away. The robber had now heard someone approaching, too. Ingeborg screamed loudly, and the horsemen on the path came racing as fast as they could. They emerged from the thickets. There were three of them. Ingeborg ran toward them, shrieking, and they jumped down from their horses. Kristen recognized the gentleman from Diedrich's loft. He drew his sword, grabbed the German she was struggling with by the scruff of his neck, and struck him with the flat of his blade. His men ran after the other one, seized him, and beat him with all their might. Kristen leaned against the rock face. Now that it was over, she was shaking, but what she felt most was astonishment that her prayer had been answered so quickly. Then she noticed Ingeborg. The girl had thrown back her hood, letting her cloak fall loosely over her shoulders. Then she noticed Ingeborg. The girl had thrown back her hood, letting her cloak fall loosely over her shoulders, and she was arranging her thick blonde braids on her breast. Kristen burst out laughing at the sight. She sank down and had to cling to a tree because she couldn't hold herself up. It was as if she had water instead of marrow in her bones. She felt so weak. She trembled and laughed and cried. The gentleman came over to her and cautiously placed his hand on her shoulder. No doubt you've been more frightened than you dared show, he said, and his voice was pleasant and kind. But now you must get hold of yourself. You acted so bravely while the danger lasted. Kristen could only nod. He had beautiful bright eyes, a thin, tan face, and coal-black hair that was cropped short across his forehead and behind his ears. Ingeborg had managed to arrange her hair properly at last. She came over and thanked the stranger with many elegant words. He stood there with his hand on Kristen's shoulder as he spoke to the other maiden. "'We'll take these birds along to town so they can be thrown in the dungeon,' he said to his men who were holding the two Germans, who said they belonged to the Rostock ship. "'But first we must escort the maidens back to their convent. I'm sure you can find some straps to tie them with.' "'Do you mean the maidens, Erland?' asked one of the men. They were young, strong, and well-dressed boys, and they were both flushed after the fight. Their master frowned and was about to give a sharp reply, but Kristen put her hand on his sleeve. "'Let them go, kind sir,' she gave a small shudder. "'My sister and I would be most reluctant to have this matter talked about.' The stranger looked down at her, bit his lip, and nodded as he gazed at her. Then he gave each of the prisoners a blow on the back of the neck with the flat of his blade so that they fell forward. "'Get going,' he said, giving them a kick, and they took off as fast as they could. The gentleman turned back to the maidens and asked them if they would like to ride. 
Ingeborg allowed herself to be lifted up into Erland's saddle, but it turned out that she couldn't stay in it. She slipped down again at once. He gave Kristen a questioning look, and she told him that she was used to riding a man's saddle. He grasped her around the knees and lifted her up. She felt a thrill pass through her, sweet and good, because he held her away from himself so carefully, as if he were afraid to get too close to her. Back home, they had never paid attention if they pressed her too close when they helped her onto her horse. She felt so strangely honored. The knight, as Ingeborg called him, even though he wore silver spurs, offered the other maiden his hand, and his men leaped onto their horses. Ingeborg now wanted them to go north, around the town, along the foot of the Ryan Hills, and the Marta outcrop, not through the streets. Her excuse was that Sir Erland and his men were fully armed, weren't they? The knight replied somberly that the ban against bearing weapons was not so strictly enforced for those who were traveling, or for all people in town who were now hunting wild beasts. Kristen realized full well that Ingeborg wanted to take the longest and least traveled road in order to talk more with Erland. "'This is the second time we have delayed you this evening, sir,' said Ingeborg. Erland replied gravely, "'It doesn't matter. I'm going no farther than to Gerderud tonight, and it stays light all night long.' Kristen was so pleased that he neither teased nor jested, but spoke to her as he would to an equal. Or more than that, she thought of Simon. She had never met any other young men of the courtly class, but this man was probably somewhat older than Simon. They made their way down into the valley below the Rian Hills and up along the stream. The path was narrow, and the young, leafy bushes flicked wet, fragrant branches at Kristen. It was a little darker down there, the air was chill, and the foliage was wet with dew along the stream bed, and the hooves of the horses sounded muffled against the damp, grass-covered path. Kristen swayed in the saddle. Behind her she could hear Ingeborg talking in the stranger's dark, calm voice. He didn't say much, answering as if preoccupied, as if he were feeling the same as she was, thought Kristen. She felt so strangely drowsy but safe and content now that all the events of the day had slipped away. It was like waking up as they emerged from the forest, out onto the slopes below the Marta outcrop. The sun had gone down, and the town and the bay lay below them in clear, pallid light. The ochre ridges were limed with bright yellow beneath the pale blue sky. Sounds carried a long way in the quiet of the evening, as if they were coming from the depths of the cool air. From somewhere along the road came the screech of a wagon wheel, and dogs barked to each other from farms on opposite sides of the town. But in the forest behind them, birds chirped and sang at the top of their voices now that the sun had gone down. Smoke drifted through the air as dry grass and leaves were burned, and in the middle of a field a bonfire flared red. The great, fiery rose made the clarity of the night seem dim. They were riding between the fences of the convent's fields when the stranger spoke to Ingeborg again. He asked her what she thought would be best. Should he escort her to the door and ask to speak with Fru Groa, so that he could tell her how this had all come about? But Ingeborg thought they should sneak in through the church. Then they might be able to slip into the convent without being noticed. They had been gone much too long. Perhaps Sister Potentia had forgotten them because of the visit from her kinsman. It didn't occur to Kristen to wonder why it was so quiet in the square in front of the west entrance of the church. Usually there was a great hubbub in the evening as people from the neighboring area came to the nun's church, 
and all around stood houses where many of the lay servants and Corodians lived. This was where they said farewell to Erland. Kristen paused to pet his horse. It was black with a handsome head and gentle eyes. She thought it looked like Morvan, the horse she had ridden back home when she was a child. "'What's the name of your horse, sir?' she asked as the animal turned his head and snuffled at the man's chest. "'Bayard,' he said, looking at Kristen over the horse's neck. "'You asked the name of my horse, but not mine?' "'I would indeed like to know your name, sir.' she replied with a little bow. Erlen Nicolaussen is my name, he said. Then we must thank you, Erlen Nicolaussen, for your good assistance tonight, replied Kristen, giving him her hand. Suddenly her face flushed bright red. She pulled her hand halfway out of his grasp. Fru Ashild Gautistadr at Dovra. Is she your kinswoman? she asked. She saw with surprise that he too turned blood red. He let go of her hand abruptly and replied, "'She is my mother's sister. It's true that I am Erlen Nicolaussen of Husaby.' He gave Kristen such a strange look that she grew even more confused, but she pulled herself together. "'I should have thanked you with better words, Erlen Nicolaussen, but I don't know what to say to you.' Then he bowed, and she thought she should say goodbye, even though she would have preferred to talk with him longer.' At the entrance to the church, she turned around, and when she saw that Erland was still standing next to his horse, she raised her hand and waved. Inside the convent, great fear and commotion reigned. Hawken had sent a messenger home on horseback, while he himself walked through the town searching for the maidens, and servants had been sent out to help him. The nuns had heard that the wild animals had supposedly killed and devoured two children in town. This turned out to be a rumor, and the leopard, there was only one, had been captured well before Vespers by several men from the king's castle. Kristen stood with her head bowed and kept silent as the abbess and Sister Potentia vented their anger on the maidens. She seemed to be asleep inside. Ingeburg wept and spoke in their defense. They had gone out with Sister Potentia's permission, after all, with the proper escort, and they were not to blame for what had happened afterward. But Fru Groa told them to stay in the church until the clock struck midnight, and to try to turn their thoughts to spiritual matters and thank God, who had saved their lives and honor. "'God has clearly shown you the truth about the world,' she said." Wild beasts and the devil's servants threaten his children every step of the way, and there is no salvation unless you cleave to him with entreaties and prayers. She gave each of them a lit candle and told them to go with Sister Cecilia Bard's daughter, who often sat in the church alone, praying into the night. Kristen placed her candle on the altar of St. Laurentius and knelt down on the prayer bench. She stared steadily into the flame as she said her paternoster in Ave Maria. Gradually the glow of the taper seemed to envelop her, shutting out everything else surrounding her and the candle. She felt her heart open up, brimming over with gratitude and promises and love for God and His gentle mother. She felt them so near. She saw the world as if in a vision, a dark room into which a beam of sunlight fell, with dust motes tumbling in and out, from darkness to light, and she felt that now she had finally moved into the sunbeam. She thought she would gladly have stayed in the quiet, night-dark church forever, 
with the few tiny specks of light like golden stars in the night, the sweet fragrance of old incense, and the warm smell of burning wax, with herself resting inside her own star. This sense of joy seemed to vanish when Sister Cecilia silently approached and touched her shoulder. Curtsying before the altar, the three women slipped out of the small south entrance into the convent courtyard. Ingeborg was so sleepy that she got into bed without talking. Kristen was relieved. She was reluctant to be disturbed now that she was thinking so clearly. And she was glad that they had to keep their shifts on at night. Ingeborg was so fat and sweated heavily. Kristen lay awake for a long time, but the deep current of sweetness which had borne her as she knelt in the church would not return. And yet she still felt its warmth inside her. She fervently thanked God, and she sensed a feeling of strength in her spirit as she prayed for her parents and her sisters and for the soul of Arna Gerdsen. Father, she thought. She felt such a longing for him, for all they had had together before Seaman Dara entered their lives. A new tenderness for Lavrens welled up inside her, as if there were a presentiment of maternal love and maternal sorrows in her love for her father that night. She was dimly aware that there was much in her life that he had not received. She thought of the old black wooden church at Gerderud, where at Eastertide she had seen the graves of her three little brothers and her grandmother, her father's own mother, Kristen Sigurd's daughter, who had died as she gave birth to him. What could Erland Niklausen be doing at Gerderud? She could not fathom it. She wasn't conscious of giving any more thought to him that night, but the whole time the memory of this thin, dark face and his quiet voice had hovered somewhere in the shadows, just beyond the radiance of her soul. When Kristen woke up the next morning, the sun was shining in the dormitory, and Ingeborg told her that Fru Groa herself had sent word to the lay sisters that they should not be awakened for matins. They had permission to go over to the cookhouse now to have some food. Kristen felt warm with joy at the kindness of the abbess. It was as if the whole world had been good to her. 